uh, perhaps uh, I will re-meet some of you from that time in uh, Manhattan, but it is about 10 years ago, I think. I think that's about correct. So I haven't been able to uh, come and speak to this uh, wonderful group um, for some time, and I'm really happy to do that. Now I'm coming from uh, Luther House of Study in Sioux Falls, and uh, you've heard a little bit about uh, the uh, new book that I've written, The Outlaw God. Uh, and you also heard that there was a theme uh, in there about Luther. But I actually think I may be able to give you a full uh, talk today without ever mentioning him. So let me uh, just set, uh, set this aside for uh, a moment and uh, uh, thank uh, all of you here at All Souls uh, and the Mockingbird Group for inviting me. And I don't know where this title came from, but there are geniuses operating uh, there in Mockingbird, uh, and they gave us a particular theme that is just right uh, for now. It's called distraction. Uh, that is uh, grace in an age of distraction, and I really want to pick up that particular theme and talk about that particular word, distraction. Since it's not only so important in our lives now, especially with certain types of technology and certain developments over time. But this is uh, an important uh, term in all of Scripture, and I want to uh, delve into that today and talk to you a little bit about how that particular matter works. I myself, as a teacher, have noticed over a period of time that certain things have changed regarding this theme of distraction I notice, for example, that my uh, students can't uh, pay attention for too terribly long. So I have to find uh, new ways to uh, interest them and keep them active and going. And it does seem as if attention spans may be dwindling. I'm not sure if that's the case, but if you just think about uh, the difference in length of sermons uh, between our present day and uh, even a generation ago, certainly a century ago, uh, when people would sit for hour-long sermons. Today, if I preached an hour-long sermon, that would be the last sermon I ever preached. Uh, and that would be the end of the whole matter. Uh, we also, I've also noticed uh, when I'm working with my students that not only do they not tend to attend for long periods of time, especially in that lovely genre that I enjoy and have uh, lived in uh, so much, the lecture. This is a German invention, by the way, uh, which was ingenious, but as with most German things, there's something wrong with it as well. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the uh, genius of the lecture, of course, is to compile in a very uh, short uh, time or space an incredible amount of material and to actually give it, give it usually in, uh, by reading out a text that is uh, in great detail and then having people take furious notes so that for a long time students actually had to learn, had to go to take note-taking classes before they could actually take a class uh, in, uh, in a lecture. Today, nobody knows what taking a note is. Uh, and furthermore, uh, I have noticed this over the period of time. I used to have my students read voluminous volumes. Now I have to give them a block. 
Now I have to give them something that they can read within about five minutes uh, period. Otherwise, it's not going to go very far. And uh, this sort of thing is the kind of interest that we've got when we're talking about this matter of distraction. Now, distraction, you will hear over and over again uh, today and tomorrow, I think, has a good and a bad side. So there are good kinds of distractions and there are bad kinds of distractions. Those of you who are raising children know that distraction is good. My uh, nephew just has twins uh, and he writes to me telling me, I would not survive without being able to distract these kids. And the primary way he survives is by setting them in front of the television with a video and they are distracted. And when they, when they produce this particular kind of distraction, he actually is noticing something. He says, I could sit down and uh, try to tell a story to my twin boys, but it doesn't do nearly as much to distract them as to sit them in front of a television set and have them look at a particular video. Right now, they love baby signing time, and they can't get enough of it. And there is something about the eye itself that I'm going to come back to that distracts from the outside world and focuses attention. So we even have that kind of word. A distraction uh, is to lose focus and to get uh, focus back. The eye has to be turned in a particular kind of direction. And the eye is a main organ here when it comes to the issue of distraction. Uh, how it is that you're going to focus and attend. And uh, uh, I'm going to have to come back to these uh, matters, but the eye itself uh, can either be distracted or it can focus, and the key to the eye is to turn it in the right direction. Uh, the eye is an interesting organ because you yourself can actually turn it one direction or another. There is another kind of distraction, however, that comes through the ear, and the ear is distracted in a different way. The ear is distracted by being flooded from the outside because if you think about it, the ear is just kind of a hole on the side of your head. And you don't have much control of it. Some of you might be a little bit strange and weird and can actually wiggle your ear. Uh, but for the, most of, uh, for the most part, we can't really make any physical change or, uh, or alteration in our ear like we can with the eye. And the ear then uh, is specifically distracted by flooding it. If you were the devil, the way that you wanted to distract the eye is to present something that is more appealing than another thing by turning the eye. If you wanted to distract the ear, you would distract it by flooding it so that you have as many voices coming in at the same time as you could possibly manage. And this is, in fact, the method of distraction, and it is one of the things, especially our young people go through presently, they are distracted by many, many voices coming through the ear, and they can't control what voice is coming in or not coming in through the ear. And that particular tool, then, is used by the devil for precisely this purpose. We're going to come back to this matter when we watch in Scripture how it is uh, that our Lord is going to address this particular matter of an ear that is flooded uh, with voices. 
So uh, there are at least uh, in the matter of distraction a couple of interests and concerns we have with the eye and the ear, but the one that I want to concentrate on today is actually the distraction of the conscience. Here, the uh, distraction of the conscience takes a somewhat different form. <clears throat> the uh, conscience is going to be affected by what your eye sees. The conscience is going to be affected by what your ear hears. But the conscience itself uh, is, uh, is going to be, um, uh, as we uh, call it today, on a track or on a voyage or on a pilgrimage from one point to another, and it seeks now to finish and complete its voyage to reach its goal, and the way you distract a conscience is to burden it or overload it. And it is, therefore, distraction in the form of burden that I want to talk about today and how it is that burdens actually come to distract us and how it is that this is actually used against the power of the gospel itself. So I want to uh, uh, think now in terms of uh, what our assumption is about our own selves and how it is that we come to be distracted and what we think we can do about it. Now, no one, as far as I can tell, ever sits you down and actually teaches you, you must think this way. But all of us actually do think of our lives as if they are on a track. This seems to come through mother's milk or comes naturally uh, to us. Uh, there are various ways that we could talk about this, but all of us actually do think of our life on a track. There is a past, there's a present, there's a future, and the track that we are on is heading towards some sort of goal. It is heading towards some sort of destiny. And that track itself then becomes the preoccupation of our life. The track uh, means I do not want to be distracted by anybody or anything that will keep me from moving on my particular track. And if anybody comes in and distracts me or if anything distracts me, that itself is what I consider to be the enemy. And lo and behold, who are the ones that first begin to distract you from your track, from your destiny, from your goal, from what Scripture actually calls a vision of glory. This is what a track is. I've got a vision of glory, and I am moving to it, come hell or high water, and nobody is going to get in my way, but the first people that get in my way are the very ones who are nearest and dearest to us. They are the family, and the family itself starts to distract us. I remember telling my beautiful wife years ago, I cannot marry you because it will distract me from my goal of, uh, of, uh, of finishing my education. <laughs> to which, of course, she responded, you need some distraction. Uh, and that was the end of that. And uh, she now took me away from my track, uh, and I have never been on it again. Uh, now, uh, this notion of being distracted, especially by the people that are nearest to us, fits into another matter. Not only do we have a track in our life, 
We're following a particular goal. Some of you even write your goals down. You put, a, put, a, put, a, put them on a refrigerator with magnets on them. You do all sorts of things to identify what the steps are, the processes. I have to do this with students too, of course. When I'm a teacher, the student always wants to know what the process is, what the goal is, and how you actually get there, what the measurements are, and they do have a vision of glory. They want to complete this particular course, and of course, they do not want just an average grade, they want an above average and even more. And so these visions of glory keep popping into our lives. We have a direction that we want to go to, and every distraction then becomes a problem for us you know, over the years in the Christian church, the primary teachers of how it was that you were to avoid distractions were the monks. It started with the Desert Fathers. There are also de Desert Mothers uh, as well. But with the Desert Fathers who decided that when you are on the path to glory, which after all they assumed was precisely what God was laying out before them, that they ought to avoid all other distractions. The first distraction you avoid is a wife. The next distraction you avoid uh, is contact with any other people. And there you end up in the desert, in a cave, living on nothing but the Eucharist. And nothing else is going to uh, take you away from your particular goal. Nothing else is going to distract you. This is the kind of life that I dream of. This is what I always wanted, to go into the desert and live a solitary life and concentrate on only one thing. I was taught this, actually, in college by one of the great Lutheran monastics. Now, when I say Lutheran, I do not mean Luther, so don't tell me I... One of the great Lutheran uh, monastics is Søren Kierkegaard. I don't know if any of you still read him, but he is the one now who had determined that he had a track or a path in life, uh, and, uh, the, and, and uh, the, uh, no one would, uh, would remove him from this, including his own Regina, whom he loved, but he knew he had to give up in order to stay on the track itself. Purity of heart is to will one thing, he said. But it was Kierkegaard who noticed something. When you are on a track, the track has a destiny, and the way you get to that destiny is to practice the use of the law. And the law always comes in the form of love, which sounds very appealing and almost kind of gracie, and then it says to you, love is not just one but two. Here comes the problem. Not only are you to love uh, your neighbor as yourself, that would be hard enough, but you are to love God above all. And now all of a sudden you have competitions between two kinds of love. And how are you actually going to stay on track where you are loving your neighbor but you are loving God above all and the only way to do this is the old monastic way to give up the neighbor and to concentrate only on God. This is the way then that you seek the path of glory and anything that would distract you from it uh, is uh, the enemy itself. 
This then, uh, this track matter is what we call a pure law, and the law actually has an effect on us. That effect now is what uh, we're going to be looking at in a moment when I turn to Luke chapter 10, because the effect of this track and this pursuit of your destiny and the fulfillment of the law has a dire effect on you yourself and on all people that are around you. And the effect that it, it describes is usually the same one that Kierkegaard found, it was anxiety. Anxiety is produced while you are on this track and you are trying to make sure nobody distracts you from the track and in order to do this now, you begin carrying a terrific burden on your path and that burden begins to weigh you down more and more and it causes anxiety. And the anxiety now becomes devastating to a person so that the very desire to move along the track uh, begins to eat itself and destroy the person and uh, the person finally finds she can't move along the track as she once was able to do. And this comes from this particular matter of what it means to actually have the burden of love laid on you by others and by yourself and you find yourself unable to control either your eye or your ear and the burden gets greater and greater and greater so that when we watch it in scripture, we begin to see that the problem is not that I can't reach the goal in my life. The problem is not uh, that I can't uh, pursue glory. Uh, the problem is the track itself. The track itself is the problem. And the problem, of course, is the law itself, which after all, is good, given by God, but nevertheless, it does not produce the power or the effect of reaching the end of your goal. And the way that this uh, works on us then is to pr produce this kind of anxiety, this kind of troubled soul, and the best way that we have it described in Scripture is that it just is dead weight. It's heaviness. It's the inability to move as we once did because the track is the law. It is not mercy. And Christ came not to help you move along the track, but to distract you, to remove your track, and to put instead of the track mercy. Let's take a look at this. I want to uh, see how he does this in the 10th chapter of, uh, of Luke. Uh, the whole 10th chapter uh, would be helpful to us. I'm going to run uh, across just a little bit of uh, uh, the front material before we get to the main story I want to get to, uh, the story of Martha and Mary that you all know. So in Luke 10... Uh, Jesus uh, has just met with his seminary students. There are 72 of them. Uh, and for the first time, they are sent out uh, on their vicarage. And in the vicarage, they are to go out and use God's word. And uh, they go out and do it, and they're absolutely amazed. They're shocked. 
uh, the demons themselves obey the word that Christ has given them. And they are shocked by this. Uh, they can heal, they can remove the demon, and uh, they actually uh, get the word put into the ear of another person, and they're just astounded by the uh, fact that this can actually work. Uh, it works without a track at all, with no uh, vision of glory and no direction and no particular purpose and no, specifically, no purpose-driven life. You, you know all about this. Uh, and they go out willy-nilly, whoever they, they're meeting, uh, and they pull out the demons and they heal and they run back to Jesus right away and they say, Jesus, you don't believe what happened. It worked. That word you gave us actually worked. Then, <clears throat> of course, somebody has to come in and muck up the water. So the seminary students are saying, we're so excited. This word accomplishes what it says. Uh, this is exactly what we uh, needed to hear, and we're so glad that we actually have been given the authority and power to give this. But in the next step, verse 25 of chapter 10, and behold, a lawyer stood up. <laughs> well, I know some of you are lawyers here, and God bless you. We need those as well, you know. Uh, I've been in enough trouble myself many times uh, where I've had to use a lawyer, so I'm thankful for your vocation. But here when it comes to this matter of distracting, now, of course, the lawyer has to stand up and say, <clears throat> I beg to differ. And now the lawyer says, uh, I would like to put this Jesus to the test because I don't think that he is right. I don't think uh, that, uh, that people have no track. They have to have a track. If they don't have a track, they'll never get anywhere. Nothing will ever be accomplished. The law itself will be not, not be done, and there will be no love in the world. So thank God the lawyer wants to make sure love is retained in society. And so he says, I want to test you. Uh, uh, and uh, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to the end of my track? Um, how are, am I supposed to do this? Because what you're saying seems very odd, it's strange, it's different than what I expected. Uh, and Jesus, of course, uh, as uh, with any lawyer, responds by saying, well, how do you read? How do you read the law that you yourself represent, and how do you read it in such a way that you think that this law itself is going to take you along your track to your vision of glory? How, what do you read inside of that? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> the old rabbi said, you can summarize all scripture standing while standing on one leg. This is the famous uh, rabbinic statement. And here it is. It comes in these two forms. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God above all. That's how you do it. So Jesus says, there you are. There's your track. What do you read? Here is your vision of glory. Now, how is it going for you? How is that working for you? And he, desiring to justify himself, 
said to Jesus, well, <clears throat> I only need one more thing to be answered before I know how to complete my track, who is my neighbor? If I knew that, then I would know how to complete this because it says love your neighbor and I just have to figure out uh, which one is my neighbor and then I can tell you whether I've done this or not. Now, Jesus says, now you sit down, I'm now going to give you a little story. And he gives him the story, not of the good Samaritan, but of the merciful Samaritan. Jesus is now going to tell uh, the lawyer about mercy rather than goodness. The law, of course, seeks goodness in the matter of love, but it can't seem to produce it. And Jesus now says, I'm going to tell you a little story about mercy. So he tells him about the Samaritan. And the Samaritan, now you remember, <coughs> is the uh, one who goes down the road and finally finds a man laying in the ditch who has been distracted. That's what that means. So the man in the ditch was going along his track one day and he was doing just, just fine when suddenly thieves lit upon him and he was distracted. It wasn't his fault. It came from the outside and there he was laying in the ditch. Now what is he supposed to do? Now Jesus says, lo and behold, first of all, a priest walks by on his path to glory and he is intent on one thing and one thing only. He loves God above all and what does he do with the man in the ditch? He walks right on by. Now why? Because he has laser focus. He knows precisely how it is that he is going to uh, love the Lord above all, and that is to go to the temple. Uh, and there he will truly love the Lord, just as, he, as it was described in the law for him. So he walks on by. He is not distracted. He is not distracted. Then the Levite follows. Same thing. He also now is going to the matter of the temple to love God above all. And meanwhile, he walks right beside his neighbor, of course, and he refuses to be distracted. Now the Samaritan comes, and the first thing the Samaritan does is get distracted. Goes off his track into the ditch, and there he finds his neighbor... And lo and behold, both the neighbor and he are dealt with not on the track of glory, but off the track entirely. And what lies off the track after all? It's not that off the track is a better track that you have to get onto, and now you can really produce it now that you find, found the right track to go on. That's not what he's found. What he's found is mercy. And that mercy now is going two ways. It's going to the neighbor and it's coming back to the Good Samaritan. Now, <clears throat> uh, Jesus says, this man, of course, is the one who understands what life is all about because he was distracted. He was removed from his track. And when he was removed from his track, the only thing left out there is not uh, uh, despair and anxiety, but actually the solution to these particular problems, which is in the form of mercy. And then Luke takes us right from this story uh, into this lovely story about Martha and Mary. So watch where Jesus goes next. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. It would seem as if Jesus himself is on a path to glory. He himself is on the way uh, into his village. 
Only Jesus, of course, knows where his track is going to end. It is not going to end in glory, but precisely in the matter of the cross. And so Jesus is more than welcome, uh, more, more than willing to be distracted whenever, uh, whenever the need arises. So he enters the village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him. Now Martha, of course, gets a lot of bad press. Here we want to start off to say, Martha is doing everything that we want a Martha to do in a church. We want, the, we want you to welcome people. That's what you're supposed to be doing. And the church itself is supposed to be a welcoming place, so you welcome them in. And Martha is going out and doing exactly what all of us should be doing, especially with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You welcome him in. But of course, it is not Martha's welcome of Jesus in that is going to matter here. Uh, and, and quite the opposite is going to happen. It is not actually your effort to be welcoming that is going to make your church the church, by the way. So Martha welcomed him into her house, into her place, onto her track. You have now come into my track, Jesus, and uh, now I'd like for you to be my guest in the midst of this. And she uh, had a sister called Mary. Here's the problem. You always have a sister somewhere. Uh, and the sister, of course, is on a different track than you are on. And uh, in this particular case, Mary and Martha now are going to be posed side by side. And you're going to watch and learn because Jesus always teaches you by contrast. So the contrast now is going to be, what is the difference between Martha, who is on a track, and Mary, who has fallen off a track? And Mary, of course, uh, the sister, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That's all she's doing. So now Mary is sitting there listening, and you'll notice when she's sitting there listening to her Lord, she is precisely doing nothing. She is precisely going nowhere. She has no vision of glory. And so there she sits at his feet. But Martha was distracted. There's our word. Uh, and the only time, at least in the English Standard Version, that actually uses the Greek word here and translate it, distracted. M uh, Martha was distracted. And now we can hear what distracts a person. Martha was distracted with much serving. The thing that distracts you is not what you think keeps you on the track. What you think keeps you on the track is much work, much effort, uh, and much serving. But now we find that the problem for Martha is that she has been distracted by the much serving, and she doesn't know any longer who her Lord is, what it is that really matters in this life, and what this Jesus Christ actually has to say to her. What she knows is the law of love, but she does not know mercy. And in this case, then, uh, she has been distracted with much serving. That Greek word is perispao, and it's a very interesting one. Uh, Peri Spao now is talking about what it means to be distracted, but uh, it, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a, 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 a verb of amount, quantity. 
And uh, the distraction now means that she has much weight laid on her. And when she has much weight laid on her, she begins to feel the anxiety of that. And the first thing she wants to do is come to Jesus and ask him for something uh, in order to help her. And so she says, Jesus, what I want is some help, but I don't need it from you. I need it from Mary. She's the one that I need to have help me. Uh, and if you could just get Mary to help me, then the weight would not be so great. All I need in life now is a friend who can walk side by side, a sister who's not going to be against me but for me, and helps bear the weight that I have. If we share the weight, then together we can move toward glory. And then Jesus, of course, says, but Martha, it is not help that you need in carrying your weight. Mary has chosen the proper destiny, the proper goal. It's uh, an unfortunate translation that we have in most of our English um, uh, translations. Mary has chosen the good portion, the uh, good part. Uh, this, can, this verb can either be uh, the, in, the, uh, in the form of, of stuff, a good portion, but also in the form of time, that is, uh, the destiny toward which you're going. Mary has chosen the good destiny, while you have the bad destiny because you are carrying your weight, and when it comes to me, you have no idea what to ask for from me. So there is Jesus standing right in front of Martha, and what does Martha want to come out of the mouth of Jesus? She does not want the word of mercy. She wants a command to come out of the mouth of Jesus to her sister to get her sister off her duff and to help her out. Jesus, just give her one command and I will be helped along my way. And Jesus says, you don't know who you're talking to, do you? You don't know what word I actually have brought, do you? You do not understand the difference between the law of love and the mercy that I bring. You do not understand the difference between the law which accuses, and it always accuses, and the accusation goes up into the, into the conscience, and the conscience is weighed down, and then suddenly you have anxiety, and anxiety turns into trouble, and trouble turns into panic, and suddenly you are in the midst of panic saying, I can't go one step further. I don't know how to get out of this. Help me, O oh Lord. The only thing that you can help me with, however, is to tell other people to carry my load, for, my load for me. And Jesus says, no. What you need now is to be distracted. Do I have enough time for one more little story from Flannery O'Connor? All of you know this story. A good man is hard to find. You need to be distracted. So here's the grandmother uh, who spends her life looking for a good man. A good man is hard to find, she says, but I'm going to be looking for a good man. I know that he's out there somewhere. And her son, who is right in the middle of her life, who annoys her to no end and uh, vice versa, uh, decides that he's going to take a trip uh, down to Florida. Meanwhile, that morning, she has been reading that there was a, uh, 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 there was a criminal out on the loose by the name of the misfit 
who had broken loose uh, on the border with uh, Florida. She says, let's not go out there, it's dangerous. He says, no, no, that's far away from the direction we're going, from the track that we're taking, and finally convinces her to go. She gets in the car, and then she drives everybody absolutely crazy by pointing out this flaw or that flaw and why it is that they're not quite good enough and how they are not the good man that uh, she's actually looking for. Uh, And as they go, uh, they are more and more annoyed by her. She realizes now that her own boy uh, doesn't know the way down to Florida, so she takes over and says, I will give you the direction. And she begins to give directions to her son, and lo and behold, they are, not, they are lost utterly and completely out in the middle of the swamps, uh, and uh, they have no idea where they're going, and suddenly the car goes off the road, distracted an accident. And lo and behold, who is the first one to come to the place of the accident but the misfit? The criminal who has been out on the loose. And the criminal now comes to the uh, family in the car and says, I'll help you now. And uh, very quickly they realize that they have fallen not into the hands of a good man, but the hands of a very bad man. And the rest of the family is taken off into the woods and she hears gunshots and there sits the misfit in front of her and she says, I know there's goodness in you somewhere. I know that there is some good there, if only we could pull it out. And when he hears this, he takes out his shotgun and shoots her three times, right on the side of the road. Then he turns to his friend and says, that woman would have been good if somebody had been able to shoot her every day of her life. Well, that's Flannery O'Connor. Now, what does this mean? (laughs) She has taken this precisely from Paul's letter, uh, uh, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. Paul says, I die daily. How do you like that? Almost every translation that you've got tries to destroy this. Uh, It says, I face death daily. That's, That's wrong. Paul says, I die daily. What does this mean? I am distracted every day. Every day I'm taken off this track. I get up in the morning and I say, what am, I, what am I supposed to do? I have a set of things, I have a set of goals, and what do I find happens? Immediately I'm distracted. I'm removed from this. Uh, and uh, removed from my path of glory. And lo and behold, now, uh, in the midst of this, I find out that I die every day. Nevertheless, This is precisely the way Christ works for us so that we are no longer living according to the vision of glory which seeks the means of the law to love the neighbor and love God but rather now finally has to stop and listen for the first time to Jesus Christ. He says, Come to you, come to me, you who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Your burden is heavy. My burden is light. You take my burden, I'll take yours, and you watch what happens when I give you mercy. 
you will be distracted totally and completely from whatever you thought your goal and purpose was, but nevertheless, dying every day, you will finally live. And the living that comes is a living that cannot be denied its destiny. Listen again to these last words that Jesus says to Martha about the sister Mary. She has chosen the good destiny to sit at the feet of Christ and simply listen to what he has to say, which will not be taken away from her. Your destiny of glory will be taken from you, but your destiny of mercy in Christ will never be taken away. Now that's what we'll have to work on uh, in the uh, later hour. How is it that Christ can say, the destiny that I give to Mary will never be taken away? And how can he be so certain of that? We'll take that up uh, in our next section. Huh? Do we have enough time for questions? Comments? Yeah? All right, You'll have, we'll have time. In fact, how about if we do this? I have, uh, I have time in the second session. Why don't we do this, uh, and in my second session, I will just open things up to any questions or comments that you have at that time. But we could at least start here, uh, and then we'll stay on track. So we'll just go for about five minutes, and then I, then I, pro then I promise, yes, I understand that. Then I promise uh, that, um, uh, that we'll, uh, we'll come back uh, for questions when I, when I uh, meet you again uh, th this evening, all right? So comments, questions that you have, yeah. Have I always, or are we? Uh, um, let, me, let me put what I'm trying to say here as clearly as I can. Uh, the track, uh, the, uh, the monastic matter, which really begins already in the third century AD, uh, is simply responding to the, tra the track kind of life that everybody already finds themselves on they do not have to develop this as an idea at a certain time. So it is by nature, now I have a better word for this, it is in our birth under sin that you immediately assume that you are on a track. And uh, how this comes, of course, finally is this matter of the law itself. There is no way for you to escape the law in life and in this world, and the law teaches you that you are on a track. And this finally uh, is what, we're, what I'm getting at or talking about. There are other ways to say this, but the, but the monks were especially interested in this, and the uh, mystics were especially interested in this. They called it the vision of glory. That's why I'm uh, identifying uh, this particular matter. Good. Others? Yes, please. Well, as the, uh, as the preacher Ecclesiastes says, of the writing of, the, of books, there is no end. Uh, and uh, it's also Ecclesi Ecclesiastes, the preacher, who says, 
uh, Lord, you have given us the weight, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the burden of trying to understand everything of you under heaven. And this is too much to bear. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 13. Now, uh, here, let me give you a little bit of a hint. All of us fall back under the matter of the law, and the law actually does produce things like books. Uh, one of my uh, teachers once uh, came in with the uh, three-volume set of Edward Skelebex's uh, Christ, Jesus, and Church. Uh, maybe, uh, this is too long ago for many of you to mention. Uh, but the stack was about this big, and he popped it on the table and says, this is the best argument I know against monasticism. That is, Skelebex was a monk and produced this kind of work. Uh, and... Uh, that. That, that itself is trouble. Now, uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, people around me ha have actually had to pay the price sometimes for some of the concentration that I have in producing a book. Yet, on the other hand, there is another thing that we can start talking about when you are distracted by God in mercy, and this is the illustration that Jesus gives. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit, but a good tree produces much good fruit. Uh, and the whole issue there is how does one become a good tree? One becomes a good tree, but not by much work and anxiety, but actually by sitting at the feet of Christ listening to his word, and lo and behold, this word actually makes you into a good tree, and a good tree produces much fruit. But one of the great things about this is that when the good tree produces much fruit, the tree knows almost nothing about it. Uh, and this is a great freedom. So every now and then, as this happened just now, I get somebody coming up and say, I really like this book, or this really helped me, and so on. And I'm shocked by this, because I say, I had no idea that that fruit was produced. And lo and behold, this is precisely the fruit that is produced that goes beyond our knowledge and understanding. And nevertheless, you can trust that the Holy Spirit will bring much fruit from you, even though you don't know it or see it, because you believe that you have been utterly distracted from your work. The law will get you to do things, but it will produce weight on you. The gospel will produce much more from you, and it will be entirely light and joyful. The, these two things you can remember, uh, and uh, the law will help produce a book, but the uh, Holy Spirit can do so uh, in a fruitful way that you did not anticipate or know. Good. All right. We have to stay on track. So we will... Uh... Thank you. Thank you.